Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I can't believe we somehow got a seat tonight. Somebody up above loves us. I'm so excited to be back here and for tonight's show, The Wiggle Room, here at the Slipper Room. And hosted by none other than Sir Richard Castle. Ah, Sir Richard Castle. Oh, he's such a filthy old bird. And that's why we love him. There really isn't anything like an incredible burlesque cabaret to top off an evening full of theater. You said it. Meanwhile, a couple of drinks wouldn't hurt. I'm on it. Your usual? Oh, you know me too well. Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the legendary show, Cabaret. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Willkommen, min Damen und Herren, Mesdames und Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, I am your host, well, at least one of them, as we delve into the seedy underworld that is Cabaret. The Kit Kat Club landed on Broadway and changed up the way a musical not only could be told, but the world in which the story took place could exist. Not to mention, along with its new, racier subject matter. But before we can move on to the second act, we must first introduce our players, along with laying the groundwork. In early 1963, producer David Black commissioned English composer and lyricist Sandy Wilson to undertake a musical adaptation of Van Durten's 1951 play, I Am a Camera. Black envisioned the musical as a star vehicle for singer Julie Andrews, but Andrews' manager refused to allow her to accept the role of Sally Bowles due to the character's immorality. By the time Wilson completed his work, however, Black's option on both the 1951 Van Drutten play and its source material by Isherwood had lapsed and been acquired by rival Broadway producer Harold Prince. Prince hired playwright Joe Masteroff to work the adaptation. Prince and Masteroff believed that Wilson's score failed to capture the carefree hedonism of the jazz age in late 1920s Berlin. Consequently, the songwriting team John Kander and Fred Ebb were invited to join the project. Their new version was initially a dramatic play preceded by a prologue of songs describing the Berlin atmosphere from various points of view. 
As the composers distributed the songs between scenes, they realized the story could be told in the structure of a more traditional book musical, and they replaced several songs with tunes more relevant to the plot. Prince and Masteroff altered Isherwood's original characters as well. The male protagonist became an American writer. The anti-Semitic landlady was transformed into a tolerant woman with a Jewish beau who owned a fruit store. The two language students were excised, and new characters, such as the Nazi smuggler Ernst Ludwig, were added for dramatic purposes. The musical ultimately expressed two stories in one. The first, a review centered on the decadence of the Kit Kat Club. The second, a story set in the society of the club. In fall 1966, the musical entered into rehearsals. After viewing one of the last rehearsals before the company headed to Boston for, a, for the pre-Broadway run, Prince's friend, Jerome Robbins, suggested cutting the songs outside the cabaret, but Prince ignored his advice. In Boston, lead actress Jill Haworth struggled with her characterization of Sally Bowles. Critics thought Sally's blonde hair and white dress suggested a debutante at a senior prom instead of a cabaret singer. So, Sally became a brunette before the show opened on Broadway. Prince's staging was unusual for the time. As the audience filled the theater, the curtain was already up, revealing a stage containing only a large mirror reflecting the auditorium. There was no overture. Instead, a drum roll and a cymbal crash led into the opening number. The juxtaposition of dialogue scenes with expository songs and separate cabaret numbers provided social commentary was a novel concept that initially startled audiences. Gradually, they became to understand the difference between the two and were able to accept the reasoning behind them. The musical opened on Broadway on November 20th, 1966 at the Broadhurst Theater, transferred to the Imperial Theater, and then the Broadway Theater before closing on September 6th, 1969, after 1,166 performances and 21 previews. The original Broadway production was not an instant success, according to playwright Joe Masteroff, due to its perceived immoral content. When the, quote, when the show opened in Boston, Master Off recalled, there were a lot of walkouts. Once the reviews came out, the public came back. At the time, actor Joel Gray was merely fifth billed in the show. And nevertheless, audiences were hypnotized by Gray's sinister performance as the MC. The musical premiered in the West End on February 28, 1968, at the Palace Theatre with Judy Dench as Sally, Kevin Coslin as Cliff, Barry Denon as the MC, Lila Kederoff as Fräulein Schneider, and Peter Salas as Herr Schultz. It ran for 336 performances. Critics such as Ken Mandelbaum have asserted that Judy Dench was the finest of all the Sallies that appeared in Hal Prince's original staging, and if she's obviously not a singer. Her Sally is a perfect example of how one can give thrilling musical theater performance without a great singing voice. In 1993, 
Sam Mendes directed a new production for the Donmar Warehouse in London's West End. The revival starred Jane Horrocks as Sally, Adam Godley as Cliff, Alan Cumming as the MC, and Sarah Kesselman as Fräulein Schneider. Cumming received an Olivier no- Award nomination for his performance, and Kesselman won the Olivier for Best Supporting Performance in a Musical. Mendez's concept was very different from either the original production or the conventional first revival. The most significant change was the character of the MC. The role, as played by Joel Grey in both prior incarnations, was an asexual, edgy character with rouged cheeks dressed in a tuxedo. Alan Cummings' portrayal was highly sexualized as he wore suspenders around his crotch and red paint on his nipples. Staging details differed as well. Instead of Tomorrow Belongs to Me being performed by a male choir of waiting staff, the MC plays a recording of a boy soprano singing it. In the final scene, the MC removes his outer clothes to reveal a striped uniform of the type worn by the internees in concentration camps. On it are pinned a yellow badge identifying Jews, a red star, marking communists and socialists, and a pink triangle denoting homosexuals. Other changes included adding references to Cliff's bisexuality, including a brief scene where he kisses one of the cabaret boys. I Don't Care Much, which was added for the 1987 Broadway revival, was maintained for this production, and Mine Hair was added from the film. The second Broadway revival was based on the 1993 Mendez Donmar Warehouse production. For the Broadway transfer, Rob Marshall was co-director and choreographer. The production opened after 37 previews on March 19, 1998 at the Kit Kat Club housed in what was previously had been known as Henry Miller's Theater. Later that year, it transferred to Studio 54, where it remained for the rest of its 2,377 performance run, becoming the third longest running revival in Broadway musical history, third only to O Calcutta and Chicago. For the Broadway production, Cumming reprised his role as the MC. The Broadway production was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, winning four for Cumming, Richardson, and Rifkin, as well as the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. In September 2013, Roundabout Theatre Company announced plans to return the company's acclaimed 1998 production to Studio 54 in New York. For this, the show's third Broadway revival, Sam Mendes and Rob Marshall reprised their respective roles as director and co-director choreographer to recreate their work from the earlier production. Alan Cummings starred again as the MC, while Academy Award-winning Michelle Williams made her Broadway debut as Sally Bowles. We all know what time it is. Time to meet our design team. The book was by Joe Masteroff, music by John Kander, and lyrics by Fred Ebb, based on the play by John Van Druten, and the stories by Christopher Isherwood. The director was Sam Mendez, co-director and choreography by Rob Marshall, Choreography recreated by Cynthia Onrubia. Set and club design, Robert Brill. Costume design, William Ivy Long. Lighting design, Peggy Eisenhower and Mike Ballarassi. 
sound design Brian Ronan, hair and wig design Paul Huntley, and makeup design by Angelina Avalon. The show arrived at Studio 54 on April 24, 2014 for a limited engagement, which was extended twice. The show finally closed after 388 performances on March 29, 2015. This particular production would receive three Tony nominations that season. In May 2021, it was announced that Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley would star as the MC and Sally Bowles in a new production directed by Rebecca Frecknall. The production, titled Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, began previews at the Playhouse Theater on November 15, 2021, which has been refurbished as the Kit Kat Club, which includes an intimate in-the-round stage reduced to a 550-seat capacity with tables that audience members can dine at as well as a refurbished foyer. On December 14, 2021, it was announced that the production's run would be extended to October 2022. The production led the 2022 Olivier Award nominations with 11 nods, including Best Musical Revival, Best Actor in a Musical for Redmayne, and Best Actress in a Musical for Buckley. The production set a record for being the most award-winning revival in Olivier history, as well as for being the first production to obtain awards in all four eligible acting categories. On March 1st, 2022, it was announced that Fra Fee and Amy Lennox would take over Redmayne and Buckley as the MC and Sally Bowles, with Omar Broad taking over as Cliff Bradshaw and Vivian Perry as Fraulein Schneider from March 21st, 2022. So let us now pull back the curtain and descend into the world of Fraulein Sally Bowles and friends. of the jazz age in Berlin, the incipient Nazi party is growing stronger. The Kit Kat Club is a seedy cabaret, a place of decadent celebration. The club's master of ceremonies, or MC, together with the cabaret girls and waiters, warms up the audience. Meanwhile, a young American writer named Clifford Bradshaw arrives via, via a railway train in Berlin. He has journeyed to the city to work on a new novel. Cliff encounters Ernst Ludwig, a German smuggler who offers him black market work and recommends a boarding house. At a boarding house, the proprietress Fräulein Schneider offers Cliff a room for 100 Reinsmarks, but he can only pay 50. After a brief debate, she relents and allows Cliff to live there for 50 marks. Fräulein Schneider observes that she has learned to take whatever life offers. When Cliff visits the Kit Kat Club, the MC introduces an English chanteuse, Sally Bowles, who performs a flirtatious number. Afterward, she asks Cliff to recite poetry for her, and he recites Ernest Taylor's tragic poem, Casey at the Bat. 
Cliff offers to escort Sally home, but she says that her boyfriend Max, the club's owner, is too jealous. Sally performs her final number at the Kit Kat Club, aided by a female ensemble of jazz babies. The cabaret ensemble performs a song and dance, calling each other on intertable phones and inviting each other for dances and drinks. The next day at the boarding house, Cliff has just finished giving an English lesson to Ernst when Sally arrives. Max has fired her and thrown her out, and now she has no place to live. Sally asks Cliff if she can live in his room. At first, he resists, but she convinces him to take her in. The MC and two female companions sing a song that comments on Cliff and Sally's new living arrangement. Herr Schultz, an elderly Jewish fruit shop owner who lives in the boarding house, gives a pineapple to Fräulein Schneider as a romantic gesture. In the Kit Kat Club, a young waiter starts to sing a song, a patriotic anthem to the fatherland that slowly descends into a darker, Nazi-inspired marching song, becoming the strident Tomorrow Belongs to Me. He initially sings a cappella before the customers and the band join in. Months later, Cliff and Sally are still living together and have grown intimate. Cliff known... Cliff knows that he is in a dream, but he enjoys living with Sally too much to come to his senses. Sally reveals that she is pregnant, but she does not know who the father is and decides to obtain an abortion. Cliff reminds her that he that it could be his child and tries to convince her to have the baby. Ernst enters and offers Cliff a chance to earn easy money picking up a suitcase in Paris and delivering it to his client in Berlin. The MC comments on this with the song Sitting Pretty, or in later versions, it should be noted, the song Money. Meanwhile, Fräulein Schneider has caught one of the boarders, the prostitute Fräulein Kost, bringing sailors into her room. Fräulein Schneider forbids her from doing so again, but Kost threatens to leave. Kost reveals that she has seen Fräulein Schneider with Herr Schultz in her room. Herr Schultz saves Fräulein Schneider's reputation by telling Fräulein Kost that he and Fräulein Schneider are to be married in three weeks. After Fräulein Kost departs, Fräulein Schneider thanks Herr Schultz for lying to Fräulein Kost. Herr Schultz says that he was serious and proposes to Fräulein Schneider. At Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz's engagement party, Cliff arrives and delivers the suitcase of contraband to Ernst. A tipsy Schultz sings Mesquite. Mesquite, he explains, is Yiddish for ugly or funny looking. A song with a moral. Anyone responsible for loveliness, large or small, is not a Mesquite at all. After seeking revenge on Fräulein Schneider, Kost tells Ernst, who now sports a Nazi armband, that Schultz is a Jew. Ernst warns Schneider that marrying a Jew is unwise. Kost and company reprise Tomorrow Belongs to Me with more overtly Nazi overtones as Cliff, Sally, Schneider, Schultz, and the MC look on. Act two begins, and the cabaret girls, along with the MC in drag, perform a kick line routine, which eventually becomes a goose step. 
Fräulein Schneider expresses her concern about her impending nuptials to Herr Schultz, who assures her that everything will be all right. They are interrupted by the crash of a brick being thrown through the glass window of Herr Schultz's fruit shop. Schultz tries to reassure that it is merely rowdy children making trouble, but Fräulein Schneider is now afraid. Back at the Kit Kat Club, the MC performs a song and dance routine with a woman, a woman in a gorilla suit, singing that their love has been met with universal disapproval. Encouraging the audience to be more open-minded, he defends his ape woman, concluding with, If you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. Fräulein Schneider goes to Cliff and Sally's room and returns their engagement present, explaining that her marriage has been called off. When Cliff protests and states that she can't just give up this way, she asks him what other choice she has. Cliff begs Sally to leave Germany with him so they can raise their child together in America. Sally protests and claims that their life in Berlin is wonderful. Cliff urges her to wake up and notice the growing social upheaval around them. Sally retorts that politics have nothing to do with them and returns to the Kit Kat Club. At the club, after another heated argument with Sally, Cliff is accosted by Ernst, who has another delivery job for him. Cliff tries to brush him off, while Ernst inquires if Cliff's attitude towards him is because of that Jew at the party, Cliff attacks him, only to be beaten by Ernst's bodyguards and ejected from the club. On the stage, the MC introduces Sally, who enters to perform again, singing that life is a cabaret, old chum, cementing her decision to live in carefree ignorance. The next morning, a bruised Cliff is packing his clothes in his room when Herr Schultz visits. He informs Cliff that he is moving to another boarding house, but he is confident that these difficult times will soon pass. He understands the German people, he declares, because he is a German too. When Sally returns, she announces that she has had an abortion, and Cliff slaps her. He still hopes that she will join him in France, but Sally retorts that she has always hated Paris. She hopes that when Cliff finally writes his novel, he will dedicate the work to her. Cliff leaves heartbroken. On the railway train to Paris, Cliff begins to compose his novel, reflecting on his experiences. There was a cabaret, and there was a master of ceremonies, and there was a city called Berlin in a country called Germany. And it was the end of the world, and I was dancing with Sally Bowles, and we were both fast asleep. In the Kit Kat Club, the MC welcomes the audience, and the backdrop raises to reveal a white space with the ensemble standing within. The cabaret ensemble reprises Wilkommen, but the song is now harsh and discordant as the MC sings Auf Wiedersehen, A Bientôt, followed by a crescendoing drum roll and a cymbal crash. The End Let's now talk about the parts that we like and we love because I love the show. 
It's a good show. I loved it. In fact, when we were putting together the research for the show, we were putting the script, I should say, uh, I went down the rabbit hole. I started watching the clips from the 1993, um, you know, the original revival, I guess, the 1993 show. In fact, I remember their performance at the Tony Awards, which was hosted by Rosie O'Donnell, which, by the way, I wish they did things like that more, where they would announce the show, but then they show outside the theater, the marquee. Like, it's kind of cool to see the marquee outside the theater. I just, I don't know, I'm nostalgic. You're a nerd. I know. And then, you know, <laughs> seeing seeing the performance again in 2013, but then also, like, more recently, the revival that's in the West End with Eddie Redgrave and... Redmayne. 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 And... Um, not Amy Lennox right now, but um, yeah, with uh, uh, um, oh my gosh, Jesse Buckley. There it is. Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley, and seeing that performance. I mean, look, she performed uh, cabaret at the Olivier Awards, and she's in this oversized suit. And at first, I'm like, this is a little under. Oh, hold on a minute. And it is. It's like, huh? Never thought. You know, because every time they've performed cabaret, it's a little bit of a, yeah, da dee dee dee, it's happy and I'm in a dress. And this is like, why are we so depressed? And I'm like, actually, let's be real. This is a really depressing song. Song. Show? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'm just like, I like this interpretation. So the fact that it just continues to pull back layer after layer after layer after layer, and you can't, you just get sucked down in it. And finally, I was like, okay. I gotta stop watching videos. I have to start writing. And I put the soundtrack on and I found myself like rocking out. Anybody walking by our apartment just seeing me, they're probably like, man, whatever album he's got on is like probably really good. And if they walked in, you know, they probably like heard, you know, they're just walking in here, diddly diddly, two ladies, diddly diddly, you know. <laughs> and I'm just having like the best time. But you're right. It is an absolutely incredible show and it's so disturbing. And... Truthfully, this is probably my favorite Candor and Ebb show of all time. Chicago is great, mm -hmm. but I prefer Cabaret. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, the Visit was fine. I prefer Cabaret. Right. Well, um, it should be noted that the show, the stage show of Cabaret is vastly different from the movie. It's because, much darker. Well, and I watched the movie thinking that that's what the show is about. And... It's not. They changed it a lot to suit um, Liza, Liza Minnelli, um, just because of what was acceptable for TV and whatnot then. And it doesn't have. It doesn't push the the Nazi storyline as much. Yeah, and so getting to see this show, it really just hit me how dark and meaty yes. the show is. Yes, in fact. My jaw hit the ground at the end, seeing Alan coming in those pajamas, in those striped pajamas, because I had no idea. <laughs> in the movie, you know, you just see the reflection of, of all of a sudden the audience is full of Nazis. And that's it. And the fact that, like, Alan Cumming takes off, well, he doesn't, I mean, Joel Grey, I think, would take off the, the tux, but the fact that um, Alan Cumming really wasn't wearing much you know, he comes out in those pajamas and you're, you you know what it is. And you can clearly see the the pink triangle, the Star of David, and there was the one. The Red Star. Yeah. 
And, you can see those markers on his chest. And and also the, the the fact that like he looks so pale and so um just so withered. So what's the word I'm looking for? Worn? Yeah, just along those lines. He just he doesn't look as lively as he did. I mean, you know, he's got a lot of that, like, makeup on Artie to begin with. So, you know, frail. Frail is the word I'm looking for. You know that he's got a lot of that Artie to begin with. But the fact that he comes out and you're just like, oh, my gosh, look at this broken human. Mm-hmm. It's, it's shocking. And the last words are essentially goodbye. Alvita Zay, bum, 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 bum. You know, oh my God, yeah. So I love the way that the story was told. And I love, by the way, that we're following up our episode of If Then with Cabaret. Two new and, 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 and two, two new ways to tell musical theater, two completely Two shows that changed the way that mm-hmm. we tell a story. This a story, because it's not complete linear storytelling. This is linear and non-linear. The linear happened when we're like outside of the cabaret. In the cabaret was non-linear. Those numbers in the cabaret were commenting on what was happening. You know, that was commenting on the world of, I I guess, you know, of of the German of now, right? Mm -hmm. Where everything else that was happening Cliff and Sally and Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz and all that. That was happening in the linear world. And we had songs in the linear world, like a pineapple fodder, you know, Mm -hmm. or um, when Fräulein Schneider sings to Cliff, you know, 50 marks, 100 marks, whatever, you know. That happens in the linear, but everything that, like, the MC introduces, it's it's a commentary and it has that twist about this is it, it has that that rose tinted glass almost about what's right. happening that social change right and i think that it's a brilliant vehicle because that is a lot of what burlesque and drag is is making a social commentary cuz he's seeing one of the things that stands out to me the most is the mc sings um if you could see, if you could see it through my eyes, right? Mm-hmm. He sings that song, and it haunts me the way that Alan Cummings sings that last line. She wouldn't look Jewish to me. And it's haunting. Mm-hmm. It's very disturbing. You're like, oh. and if you don't know the story of Cabaret, you almost have to go, what does that have to do with anything? You know? Why does it matter if she's Jewish? And then you like start to put two and two together about like, uh-oh, we know where this is going. Furthermore, it the fact of where the MC ends up at the end, mm-hmm. he's playing into like he, like all good performers, like all good showmen, know your audience. Well, and um, one of the things I love about the show is it when a tragedy happens like the Holocaust and World War II Mm -hmm. a lot of people go how did we get here how did we get here well in this show it shows how quickly and how easily 
we can slip into that hatred. Exactly, and 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 you're you are exactly right. When people when there's a giant horrible event, people are like, I just never saw this coming. You know, I didn't know what sign to look for, and all of a sudden, it's like, really, you didn't notice this? It started with that. Oh, but that was just a little thing. Exactly. It does. These horrible atrocities don't start as horrible atrocities. Nine times out of ten, they don't start go from zero to ten. They build up with little microcosms. And they build up that way. And you're exactly right. This show shows that where it's like, we started having fun and yet da 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 and slowly these little microaggressions work their way in and they built and they snowballed and one thing led to another. And this idea gained speed and it showed the danger of not saying no or stop or whatever, of just letting words fester and grow. I think now would be the perfect time. Well, before before we go to that, the last thing, I, I'm sorry, I just, I have to say this. Um, I loved the going with the social commentary that you think that these sexual frivolous people are the moral problem. You know, at first when they come out, I mean, that opening number is a lot. In fact, I would say go watch the Tony Award performance from 1993. And the fact that, you know, that's 30 years ago, right? Ooh. 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 I'm sorry. How old are you? Settle down there, child. Anyway, 30 years ago. And you watch this number and you're like, wow, that was on CBS in primetime. Huh. You know, and they got away with it because it's theater. Like, if it had been anything else, it would have been like, uh-uh, not in 1993, you know. But nobody's looking around at the real problem that exists, which is the extremism and bigotry. They're so focused on the idea of, like, the real issues, the people on stage, and all the free love, and yada da 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 And it's like, really? You think this is the problem? You think we're the problem? And... Now cue your line. Sounds like a perfect time to move on to our little boxes to really break apart the show, starting with the set. Yes! <laughs> One thing that I loved about the set. Um, uh, I, well, I love the set. I think we can all agree about loving the set, right? I love that the set... He loved the set. I love the set. I love that the, the set was the entire theater. And the thing about when you change an entire theater is it immediately shakes your comfort zone up. And it already puts you a little bit on guard and it makes you a little uneasy. And you're supposed to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And then you're supposed to question a lot of things. Because again, building off of that idea I just said about you think we're the problem, look at you. It immediately starts to make you look around and take in everything, not just what's on stage. So they turned Studio 54 literally into a club. Which is kind of silly if you think about it because Studio 54 literally was a club at one point in time. Settle down, Disco Diva. <laughs> but what I mean by that is like, okay, so the orchestra was, um, they had the full tables and the pull-out chairs and that like the Kit Kat Club and with the cute little lamp on the table. But even up in the balcony where we were, 
The end caps along the stairs even had the little lamps with the shades in that. Mm-hmm. So everybody had that like immersive experience, you know? Well, and being set in Studio 54, it still had the carpet and the hallways that felt like yes. the club. Every bit of this felt like it was the Kit Kat Club. You felt like you were in like a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. And the stage actually was extended further out to accommodate more seating mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> what I loved is they used the sides of the stages and up into the boxes yes. where it looked like scaffolding, but then also gave them more play area so that they could be not only in the club, yes. but then also have spots for uh, action to take place. Because Alan Cumming would make commentary and whatnot from the boxes as well. Mm-hmm. And start scenes in that from there, and it was like, "Hi, I, you know." And it, the songs would take place down center, but we you they utilize the full space. Mm-hmm. And I also love that the, like we had mentioned, it broke the fourth wall, so the cast did not stay. See, if you if you paid the money to sit down there in the orchestra, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I've got a good seat. This is all great." It's like. Actually, what you paid for was the interactive scene. Mm-hmm. Because the cast would come out and they would interact with you. Alan Cumming is totally going to sit on your lap and jump on you. So was that cute little band and every Like, yeah, they came out into the audience. It was wonderful. Um, now, you mentioned the carpet and everything. And I mentioned, like, the lamps and everything. But I think one thing we both can remember is how run down, though, it looked. Mm-hmm. It didn't... the. I love the LeMay curtain that was behind that crooked frame. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to be like the most glitzy thing. Like we went to Party City and bought this curtain to try to zhuzh up the place. But everything just kind of had this rundown feel to it. And of course, what's interesting and, and one of the reasons why Hal Prince did this story, like what attracted to him is he was in Germany between World War One and World War Two, And he went to a, a, a cabaret club in a bombed out church basement and saw something similar to this and that's kind of what inspired him to do the way he did this mm-hmm. um, and that's the sense that you got from this is it's like it's not a glitzy Vegas nightclub like this really is a hole and right. yet they're and putting on a show with well and we're trying to escape and this is where we're escaping to right like it just tells you how Poor everything else is. How desperate and everything, yeah. I also love the skewed look of everything. And it started with the fact that there's that giant frame tilted. Mm-hmm. Everything is just off, just Still a look. touch. Nothing was perfect. And that was meant to be that way. Because it was, you, you're supposed to be uneasy. And you're supposed to look at things just a little like, uh, uh, pay close attention to stuff, you know? really pick apart stuff. And I, I also think that's the social commentary on 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 everything. Was really don't 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 get comfortable. Don't take things for what they are. Really closely examine stuff. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the set was giving us social commentary is a tip of the hat to the set designer. Mm-hmm. That's just smart. Um, but at the same time, um, I love the simplicity. There wasn't these elaborate sets with giant backdrops it's a cabaret mm-hmm. it's a cabaret we had a couch a sh- uh, a, a chaise a what oh or sorry yeah, a, sh- a chaise a chaise a chaise a chaise a chanteuse 
I don't know. Yeah, the couch thingy with the bed and the hula. Uh, listen, I don't own fancy furniture. I don't know. I shop at Ikea. Um, you should then know how to say really complicated. I, I shouldn't say complicated, um, but you should be able to... You know, that's another language, too. That's sweet. I can build complicated furniture. I can't say it. Okay, um, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I love just the simplicity of it. Um, and it really just made it fantastic. So let's move on now to costumes and what costumes they were. Yeah, yeah. They were beautifully dingy and scary sexy. And um, <laughs> well, scary sexy. They were frighteningly erotic. Well, no, it was like it was like it was like soiled lingerie. <laughs> like, this is getting worse. Soiled lingerie. Like, it's like, okay, I have three 90s and all of them are slightly soiled. But oh I'm going to wear them anyway. This is a horrible imagery. But that's what it is. Okay. Ew. Um, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just, ew. Soiled lingerie. Stop it. Someone make a t-shirt of that. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, though. They're iconic, sexy, and gorgeous still. The MC look, I really love. So we already have the Joel Grey iconic in the tuxedo, but, like, white face with the rouge cheeks and the lipstick. You know, just too much makeup, which is how, what Hal Prince saw when he was in that bombed-out church basement. Mm-hmm. That's the MC that he saw. The reimagining with Alan Cumming, the really hypersexualized. But still retaining parts of that. The fact that his nipples are painted red. Mm-hmm. And not so much his dimples. Mm-hmm. See what I did there? Except for these are your cheeks, not your dimples. Where are your dimples? Dimples happen in the, in the holes. Oh, I thought they were up here. Whoops. No. Okay, so instead of nipples, <laughs> is cheeks. Wow, I am failing like it's my job Ooh. today. Um, you know, Alan Cumming was not... Painted to the gods in such an andromedous, andronymous way. Uh, sexually androgynous? Androgynous. Ah, I failed. But you can understand what I'm saying, right? Yes, it's basically he applies makeup and it's fallen off a little bit, so then he puts a little bit more on, and it's just kind of this perpetual, like, eh, it's done up enough. Eh, it's here, it's on. But he isn't, like, trying to be man or woman or both. He is, like, he's just painted for, like, the limelight, and that's it. Correct. And, 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 but he's, it's his, it's his movement and the, the showing of skin that makes it sexy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I liked how very worn and tired and exaggerated the sex worker look was. It had this very grease paint-like. Um, so, they could have taken it a step further, I think, with, like, the fishnet. They could have done like a fishnet look and colors and that, and they didn't. They kept it very pale. And even then the face, mm-hmm. it, there was not a lot of use of red. It was still all very pale. And like I said, grease paint look. Um, and I think that was really, again, another social commentary of the state of the world at that time, particularly there in Germany. Things are not rosy. Why should we have rosy cheeks and happy smiles and that? Things are not so great. Right, like let's get to down to the nitty gritty of it. Like, 
I don't know. The, the best way I can think of it is it's like a brothel. It's like... It is! You're, you're there for sex, so here's the scant clothing. I look like I'm wasting away, but eh. But I also... What's funny is they're using more pale colors and more whites, and they try to come off as pure, and I'm like, I don't think that's your intention, but it comes off that way, but it's also kind of a what kind of thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You do a double take about it. So... Um, the show looks very cheap yet gaudy in its costumes. Like it looked like a thrift store costume, a lot of the time in the cabaret. Mm. That black leather trench coat that the MC wears, the the outfits that the band is wearing, and the... well, it, the band is wearing like these like silky. It's that soiled silk look. Well, the boys are just like in suspenders and like leather pants. Yeah. And it's like they went to the Lower East Side and found, a, you know, someone just dumped all their leather pants. And that's what we found. They don't look high couture, fancy pantsy kind of thing. You know what I mean? No, and nor should they. Exactly. No, no, that's what I, I'm not. I'm not saying that, like, it was, it's cheap in a bad way. They're supposed to look like we're, we're using found objects to cover us. Mm-hmm. That's what they're supposed to look like. I wouldn't go as far as like found objects, but it's definitely people who would ha- who only have like a certain amount of clothing, and they keep using it and using it and using it. And the only way they get new clothing is when one piece is so soiled that they have <laughs> to get a new one. Yeah. Um, the pajamas at the end—it's just still—it's burned in my mind. I can't. I can't lose that image. I can't, I can't get that out of my mind. That's one of those things that, like, you you know when you see something or hear something or whatever that you just, it will never leave? Mm-hmm. It's just scarred you? That's one of them. Um, I did like the leather jacket reveal from Alan Cumming. Mm-hmm. You know, he just welcomes you in with that finger at first and then just opens up the leather jacket and he's just, yes, I am just sexy, you know? I mm-hmm. love that. So that would now, I think... If I may, lead us to lights. I loved the feeling that the lights created Yes, this show. They were incredible. And the color palette they used with the reds and pinks and purples. But it also felt very muted, yet washed all at the same time. Yes, like they, they shouldn't be, the color shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. It felt wrong, but like... They were trying to cover up something. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like they're trying to add some light, some color to our world to make things a little brighter. But it was supposed to. But overall, it was still dark and shadowy. Mm-hmm. And with that color palette, we still got that lustful, loving, doty, sexy, passionate. Just. But everything just felt like, like there was the life was just barely hanging on. Yes. And, and the use of shadows really helped. And, and if you know, remember, the shadows got longer and taller as the show went on. Mm-hmm. As the overshadowing, as the shadows grew loomed larger the... of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that not all the lights on the stage worked, too. Um, first of all, the frame... Mm-hmm. None of those lights worked, which I was like, oh, we'll run down the stage. But also, as like the show went on, I don't know if you caught on to this, some of the lights in the theater stopped working. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. Some of the lamps quit working, <laughs> which was cool. Um, and it helped to show how run down the Kit Kat Club was. I also loved the limited use of spotlights. Mm-hmm. 
and they kept spotlights to mainly in in the club. Yes. When we were in the linear world, like there were spots used, but they weren't hard spots. Like you can normally see in shows where you know it really stands out in the lighting so that we can see the actor's face. But it was when, more like diffused spotlight. But when we were in the Kit Kat Club and somebody was singing, it was a hard spot. It looked like your typical like vaudeville kind of like, here's your hard light kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we mentioned before in previous shows, um, I, it's, I, it escapes me right now, but that's okay. It's not the most important thing. I love the use of the floor lights, mm-hmm. of those footlights and the shadows that it created. You know, um, the power of shadows is just so important. Uh, Pippin, I think, was the last show that we talked about, the use of footlights. Mm-hmm. But um, that vaudeville, I mean, you know, vaudeville, of course, was, uh, in my memory, the last time that footlights were widely used. But it has a totally different effect when you light someone from down below. Oh, yeah. And we're not used to seeing that really as a modern audience. We're used from to, of the above and, and the straightforward. So when we have that primary source being from down below, it's it's a completely different wow. Mm-hmm. So should we go on into direction? I think now sounds like a great time to go into direction. Oh, does it now? Well, Sam Mendes. I don't know about him. I'm just I'm not sure about this Sam Mendes guy. Hmm. No, it was amazing. The pacing and tempo was fantastic. Oh yeah. Well, and the idea to have the band and the cabaret people all be the same people. Yes. Um, because there was a distinctive like band and not like I'm trying to describe not all of the band members were also dancers, but there was a good mix. There was a pit. There was an orchestra pit, but there were also members of the pit that were in the show on stage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the underlying tension and unease was perfectly matched with the raucous and riotous troupe led by the MC. Mm-hmm. So, and this this is exactly how drama is at its best, when you have that perfect balance of comedy and drama. If you want really intense drama, you have to have that high and low. You have to have that breathing. Like I've mentioned so many times with Sweeney Todd is my best example. Mrs. Lovett is that comedic balance and she has to be that wackadoo kind of character that lovable wackadoo character wackadoo <laughs> sorry um, to Sweeney and all the darkness that surrounds him and that he does in order for Sweeney Todd to thrill or frighten an audience mm-hmm. because killing someone and the way that he does it and the music itself is already terrifying but if you don't have that light hee-hee-ha-ha moment of Mrs. Lovett, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit as hard. And so in this same tone, the fact that we have all this heavy and dark and horrible stuff happening, but then we have the MC doing these hilarious, raucous, debaucherous numbers, you know, two ladies, and you're making all these terrible comments on that at the same time. It lightens the mood, but then it lets that next dramatic thing hit us even harder. Because we were laughing and now we're like, oh my god, that's right. This this horrible thing is still happening. Right. Well, and one of the things that I just think that the director did beautifully was create that that almost dead inside look that everyone has yes. on stage. Because it's like, we're so tired, we're so fed up, and 
we're almost dead inside and there's that tiny little bit of hope that goes completely out the door at the end. Yes, yes. And I feel like the performers did their best to make us feel like everything was okay. Mm-hmm. The whole two and a half hours we were there, the, the whole time they're just trying to paint the picture of like everything's okay, nothing's gone wrong, everything's all right, though it wasn't. And the wheels just kept coming off as we went faster and faster and faster down the hill. And because of the direction of the show, it never felt out of control, just spiraling. It was a controlled spiraling, and that was exciting and thrilling because we were waiting for everything even, to crash, and it never did. Right, but it's, that also is indicative of just how manipulative the government was to the German people during um, the rise of the Nazi party. You know, I, I wouldn't say the government, but the Nazi party. Yes, yes the Nazi party that infiltrated the government. Yes, yes, but no, that's exact. You're exactly right. Where. It's just, it's maddening to think that it was like a mother trying to comfort their children of like, everything's fine, everything will be okay, everything's fine. But reality, we know like, no, it's not going to be okay. This time, it won't be all right. Mm -hmm. Things aren't going to be the way you think they're going to be. And ultimately, they weren't. But you can just feel the snowball going faster and faster, coming down the hill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But it never hit anything. Mm -hmm. And and like I said, that last thing, you're just like... (gasps) And for me, all the elements worked perfectly together to communicate the message, the words, the feeling, just to give the audience that whole experience. And we all left moved and with those images and memories just seared in our minds. Like I said, the set even spoke words. You know, you, we, we, we've, had, we've talked about shows where both the, the movement, the words, the music, and the lighting have all like complemented and worked together. But how even the set and the sound and everything was talking to each other and speaking to the audience. This was a whole show that the director literally just pulled together and was like a, a puppeteer for a marionette just working. And it was beautiful. I'm doing the tradition arms right now. Tradition. <laughs> Um, may we move on to music? Uh, we can't not talk about music. Oh, I thought you were going to say we can't. And I'm like, oh, fine then. Well, <laughs> no, we can't not talk about the music because it is iconic. Yeah. I, I, as I've mentioned, this is probably one of my favorite Kander and Ebb shows. It's one of my favorite scores. It's just beautiful. Uh, brilliantly performed. And you mentioned already the fact that there was the use of a real orchestra and the ensemble, the pit orchestra, but also... Like actual, the, the ensemble of the, the show, the, the actor ensemble was also part of the pit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Alan Cumming is a genius. And just the way that he delivered the music. Every song had a different personality. He reimagined Kander and Ebb's score. I mean, obviously we all know that he delivered that Mesdames and Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen. Like, that was different every time, you know? Mm-hmm. But just every song, every time he delivered the music, it was beautiful and different and wonderful. And there was something, he was singing a song, but there was something underneath being told as well, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the orchestrations were also just really incredible. They were not too heavy, but not too light. They were just... Well, and what I love the most about the score is... There's something off about it, and it's intentional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so instead of the chords lining up perfectly to make these beautifully tall, fulfilled sounds, they're just slightly cut off. 
where they just feel crumpled. There's like a dissonance in them, and you're uh-huh. just you, you you literally can't put your finger on it. You're like, I, I feel like there's one too many instruments, or there's one too few instruments. Mm-hmm. Something is missing. You don't know what, but it's meant to make you feel that way. Mm-hmm. It just leaves you crumpled and like off kilter, and it's just beautiful that they could communicate that with music. And they also help communicate the moment and the energy of the story, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Um, and speaking of communicating the energy of the story, let's go to our final box, which is uh, choreography. It was very sensual and very hypersexualized. So, you know, the original cabaret was a Fosse show. No. Right. I'm Another Fosse show? Ugh, I know, right? So I shouldn't say it was Fosse-esque. It was <laughs> Fosse. <laughs> um, well, the, obviously... That would explain the sensuality and the hypersexualization. Right. But also, the thing that I love about using Fosse for this kind of a story is Fosse does slightly, um, you know, disorient the body. Yes. Just make it, like, off kilter like we've been talking about. It was never entirely energetic in its movements. Mm -hmm. There was never a huge dance number. It was more like a tired floor show. But again, it was just sexualized. The most energetic person in the show is the MC. They are working the crowd like it's their job. That is what an MC does. So yes, right, it is right. their job. But, but, but like they're trying to hype up, but ev- all the performers are just so run down and tired and hungry. And you know what I mean? Like they're just they got nothing left to give. And so even when they perform, you just it is a half-hearted performance, mm-hmm. which is a testament to the actors to be able to give a full performance that's a half performance if that makes any sense it's like when people think the easiest thing for an actor to do is to give up to perform badly it's actually really hard to perform badly because it's against nature Mm -hmm. this would be a, a, a bad performance so this is perfect Fosse so that these movements are slow and subtle and small um and it complemented the music and lyrics so much too mm-hmm um, when movement happened in the show, it happened with a seduction and sex in mind. Mm-hmm. There was a want there. I have a need I need to feel. And I will say, in saying this as it leaves my mouth, it may not necessarily be sex. It might be, I need food, I need shelter, I need escape. I yeah. need to get out I of here. I need something from you, and I'm going to use my body to have you give it to me. And like you mentioned, there were just these dead eyes, but it was this... You can't allure. see what he's doing with his hand, but... It's this allure. It's this ooh-la-la. <laughs> mm, you know, it's the Fosse moves. And it was amazing. And I really, really just appreciated it. The show has had several notable performers, including Michelle Williams, Danny Bernstein, Linda Edmond, Sienna Miller, Emma Stone, and Alan Cumming. talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. First out the gate, it's worth note- noting 
and we're again speaking mainly uh, this. Well, this is about the revival. It's the third longest Broadway revival. Mm-hmm. That is impressive. That is worth noting. Um, now back to the kind of the show. Ta-da! I would say it's groundbreaking in its subject matter. We talked about abortion in the show, the rights of Nazism, you know, um, the debauchery that's in this. Now, look, today that doesn't seem like a big hurrah. I mean, maybe the abortion still, okay. But everything else, right? Mm-hmm. When the show was first done in the 70s, mm, I'm going to say that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I, I really just think that this... The, the, the show's biggest impact is not only it helped to establish a aesthetic that is notoriously Broadway, um, but also really just, I mean, beyond the subject matter, it gave us a new way of telling a story. And I really think that that's right. one of the... the linear and nonlinear style. And I think that that's one of the most important things that this show has given to the, the theater. I also would add on to that um, that it brought how Prince and Candor and Ed together. Right, I mean, that that also is very important. I mean, it's a how Prince direction and a Candor and Ed music and lyrics, which brings in also that it's an iconic score. It is cabaret. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, um, whether what? you know it from the movie or whether you know it from the theater, either way, you know cabaret. You know the song cabaret, you know the song... Maybe this time, you know, the opening to Cabaret. Right. Well, and I think that it's important for the younger generation to understand why this show made such an impact to our musical theater history. Absolutely. Where, where its roots lie. Mm-hmm. Why was it so important at the time? Why did it stir the pot so much? And here is why. So, societal impact. We're going to turn back to, I would say, more of the... Revival with this. Um, the first thing I would say about this is it continued to encourage sex positivity. You know, it is a hypersexualized show, um, but the sex is not the. We're not. You're not demeaned for sex throughout the bulk of the show. Does that make sense? With the, exce- the exception of Fraulein Cost, who's bringing sailors, like. With the exception of that, there's not like slut shaming, if you will. We're all having a good time, and it's widely accepted. And I think that creates right. A well, lot of to sex have positivity. like a strong character like Sally Bowles choose to embrace her sexuality and her lewdness and her looseness to, you know, be like, hey, this is who I am. I want to be carefree. I want to. You know, have as many sexual encounters as possible, and that's fine. To have a character like Cliff that's written as bisexual, to have um, a sexually androgynous character like the MC. Mm-hmm. You know, it. it there I'm is not, something I, I'm empowering. I'm condoning about it. and saying that that's the way that everyone should be, but it's basically saying this is not a show to shame you to use to use right. one one group's standard or morals to say this is the only way. Right. These people exist and have always existed. And it's not it's not anything new, so we can let them exist in our world. Um, I would also say it showed the danger of fascism. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it showed how fascism can rise and dominate quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it showed how humans are dangerous. 
I think humans are the most dangerous thing in the world. Right. Well, and I think that it's important to continue to remind people that, you know, dangerous, dangerous things come from dangerous thoughts. And dangerous thoughts happen because we let them. It reminded, we, in this particular production, in this revival, it reminded a country of the dangers of being so polarly divided. Right. And that the easiest way to stop fascism and the easiest way to stop hate is by calling it out when yes. it happens. Early, not later. Early. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then rounding it out, I would say it introduced a younger audience to a powerful and important piece of theater. I know at first everyone's going to be like, I don't understand. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't know Michelle Williams, but she's an Academy Award nominee, I believe, if I remember right. Um, I mean, I don't know how younger audiences know Alan Cumming. The, I think the first memory that comes to my mind is... This Space World movie. movie. Yeah, I was like, Space World. Uh, and of course, I mean, from there, I know him from other things, you know. He has a great book, Not My Father's Son. Definitely read it. It's very good. And I've seen him in, obviously, other shows. Uh, he We talked about him in, in a really gripping production of Macbeth. Uh, I recently saw him in a dance production called Burn, but, you know. Uh, but late, uh, So I would say Alan Cumming helped to bring a generation in, because he does a lot of great TV work as well. But then later on, of course, we had Emma Stone come into the role of Sally Bowles, making her Broadway debut, which she was fabulous in. And we all know Emma Stone from, you know, Easy A, The Help. Um, oh my gosh, she's in so many things. La La Land. Yeah, I'm like, I can't even... like. I love Emma Stone. I love Emma Stone too. Like her vibe and just her, her approach to characters... Is yeah. great and she's stunning. I wish she'd do more Broadway theater. Yes. I I love I love that she did this and like I said I heard she was fabulous in it so I was like oh yay. So let's ask the big question: Is this show still relevant? In my opinion, with things in our country here in the states and well really actually in our world more divided than ever and with the evils and dangers of fascism growing at such an alarming pace. I say yes, yes, a resounding yes. This show has an important message, a powerful score, and a timeless style. I think now more than ever, it is needed on Broadway. And actually, I would like to see what a new version may bring. So perhaps a transfer of the current West End production. You know? Yeah, um, yeah I completely agree. I think that the ideas that are presented in this show are things that are timeless and things that need to constantly be brought to the consciousness of audiences because it is so important to remember that the way that you stop hate and that you stop mass tragedy is from is from is, is speaking by, out is speaking out and stopping the dangerous uh, ideas and the catastrophic you know, ideologies in their tracks when they start. These aren't new things. We've seen it before. That's why mm-hmm. shows like Cabaret exist. So mm-hmm. doesn't take new solutions. The answer is there. So yeah, I it's yes. they call the Spanish angle. Dukes and lords and Russian czars, men who own their motor cars, throw up their shoulders. 
that raggedy melody full of originality. Italian opera singers yeah. have learned to snap their fingers. Give it on, baby. The world goes round to the sound of the international. 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 The international ride. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. We had the good fortune of seeing the show once back in 2014. Uh, we've shared a lot already about um, the show already, but a uh, few things just to to remember. Again, I just remember being so disturbed and moved and just overtaken by everything. You know, um, the show. This this is the show that I have just such a visceral memory of. When I hear the soundtrack, I, I can remember almost everything from that afternoon at Studio 54. Mm-hmm. I, I'm immediately taken back. I, I remember we were sitting balcony left. Mm-hmm. And I just remember I can where Alan Cumming came out, where he was at, and the boxes, and all of that. Meeting him afterwards was incredible. He's very nice. Um, we have that autographed playbill in our playbill tombs. Um, and just that final scene. My jaw dropping, my stomach dropping. I just yeah, well, and not knowing that, not realizing that that's how it ended. Yeah, and I, like I know, maybe we're ignorant theater people, whatever. But we had just seen the movie, so I was like, wait, that's how the musical ends. Mm-hmm. It's scarring. So the other thing I really found interesting, and I don't know if you remember this, we got seated, but we never got a playbill. We didn't get playbills till we left. As we were leaving, they were handing out playbills. So you didn't get your playbill until you left. Mm-hmm. Um, and kitties, this was about 10 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, you weren't hardcore on your phone on the Instahoots and the Twits and the Facebooks. Yeah, you had, you, you had to phone, talk to people. Well, and your phone didn't do as many things as it does now. So, like, you were sitting in the audience and you observed the pre-show. Like... You were just... You were talking with people. You were taking everything in. But normally you would just be reading the playbill, but you didn't have a playbill to read. Mm-hmm. So that to me was like a really unique thing and an interesting take. And also, it, it what I also liked is, you know those people that like read their playbills in the middle of a show? Lean over and use a light for the aisle to see what song we're on. And you know, and I'm just like, put it away. Enjoy the show. You can feel when we're at like the the intermission number or when it's the 11 o'clock number. You can feel it. You can feel a show wrapping up. So theater is back and we hope, we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, a.k.a. the Playhouse Theater in London's West End eight times a week. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, 
please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, John Bartman, Kevin McLeod, Sophie Tucker and Al Jolson, and Billy Murray. <laughs> <laughs>